Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm also the vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. And I'm Leanne Castle, a respiratory physician at Barts Hospital in London. This is part of our regular podcast series where we have informal chats with experts in their field and tackle the most important issues that we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers. It is important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed in these podcasts. We would love to hear your questions and comments on things we've discussed in this podcast. Please contact us uh, by emailing us at uh, info at btog.org or tweet us at btog.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the BTOG podcast. I am by myself today, uh, Leanne sadly is not joining me because it's been recorded during the junior doctor strike and Leanne has pulled the short straw of doing nights. So I'm alone, but I am joined by my good friend and BTOG champion, uh, Shobit Baijal, who is a medical oncologist in Birmingham and has a huge experience in lung cancer. And we're going to be talking about EGFR mutated lung cancers today. Now, the eagle-eyed or indeed eared among you might remember we've already done EGFR mutated lung cancers because I did a podcast back at the beginning in November 2021 with Samrin Ahmed and we talked about EGFR mutated lung cancers, how you diagnose them and we went around quite a few aspects but things have changed and things have changed enormously and I think it's a really good time to revisit EGFR mutated lung cancer, what has appeared in the past 18 months, and lots of stuff has appeared, and Job is a real expert on that, but also what might be coming, what's new, what might we look forward to. So that's the uh, premise behind it. If you want to go back and listen to the original podcast, I strongly recommend you do, should still be what is still available on wherever you download your podcast from. So Shobit, welcome to the BTOG podcast. Thank you, Tom. And uh, looking forward to this. Excellent. Uh, I know you are. I sent you a list of questions um, and I know you're delighted to receive those um, about two hours ago, having done a full shift as a FY1 on the ward. Um, but, you know, these things are here to test us. So the first thing we're going to talk about is adjuvant EGFR TKIs, in particular, adjuvant osimertinib. Now, in the podcast we did 18 months ago, we talked about the Adora study. The ADORA study, for those of you who may not be familiar, is a study in patients who've had surgery for early stage lung cancer. Um, they may or may not have had chemotherapy, depending on the wish of the investigator, and they either got three years of adjuvant osimertinib or they got a placebo. And we knew at that point that there was a disease-free survival benefit. We didn't know much else. So, Shobit, what's happened? We've had a couple of updates on disease-free survival data, and then we've also had a really, really interesting press release about a week ago. Can you tell us about those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think Adora was uh, was a real game changer in that adjuvant setting where we really hadn't seen any momentum for probably decades, um, and it was really the first time we saw personalised oncology enter the early stage. Um, and the initial readout, obviously, the, the trial read out or, or um, read out earlier than it, the, the planned analysis because of such positive data. And we, we saw DFS in the stage two to to three A resected tumours of around I think it was 0.17, 
um, and the overall population, uh, including the one Bs, it was at 0.2. So hazard ratios, I think I'd never seen before. So and yeah, just to let people know that that's an extraordinary number. The so hazard ratio of 0.27 is a what is it, almost an 80% reduction in in the risk of disease relapse. I mean, that's huge in the overall population. Yeah, phenomenal data. Um, and then recently we had a four-year update on the DFS, a slight narrowing, or should I say um, uh, uh, narrowing in terms of the benefit for Aussie, the osimertinib group. But yeah. I'd say from my perspective, not a, a huge difference, but I think enough to put the sceptics uh, questioning whether this was, was the DFS really going to translate into an OS benefit yeah. or were we just delaying um, you know, metastatic disease, um, the occurrence of metastatic disease. But I think really, and, and I think that's what you're alluding to, is that there has been a press release just a f very recently from um, the the trial or the AstraZeneca stating that there is actually a statistically significant overall survival benefit in the study for the osimertinib treated group. So um, more data will come at one of the major congresses. But um, yeah. And that, I mean, that that's really hit the headlines, I mean, Twitter. Well, the, the Twitter people I follow is all all gone mad again because there was this there was this argument between the DFS believers who would say, "Look, you've got a disease-free survival benefit; it's massive. That's all you need." Um, and those who would say, perhaps the more purists, well, unless I've got an overall survival benefit, why are we giving it? We're just delaying it. And I think the I think the DFS believers have been proven right. If you can put it that way are, are you convinced now is is this now because this is nice approved is this going to be a, a routine part of your practice for your um your your post-operative egfr mutation positive patients yeah i mean i, I personally i was one of the, the believers in the dfs and i think it, it's it's reassuring to get this this os uh, confirmation um, that the, ben the magnitude of the benefit, I mean, I think worst case, even if we were delaying the inevitable, I think from a patient's perspective, that, that I think would still be desirable, um, a pathway to go down. And, and also there were other aspects of, you know, less CNS recurrence, um, or, or yep. et cetera, which would clearly from a patient's perspective, yep. um, I think would be highly desirable, but yes, I, this was, you know, incorporated into our pathway. Importantly, I think, you know, the testing the testing for the EGFR in early stage had to be incorporated, but yeah, I was uh, already a believer, and I think this just rubber stamps things. And just remind us that the stages of the patients, as in the pathological stages, that were recruited to the study, it was one B to three A, but bearing in mind that was on version seven of yeah um, staging. So, and, and the benefit in one B was a little bit less but we're still there a greater benefit. I think it's fair to say in the stage two to three, eight, that the more advanced, I guess, unsurprisingly, the greater the benefit. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I, like you said, I think that we would expect because of just the, the, the worse or the higher risk of relapse for those patients. Yeah. Um, what else is going on in the, adjuvant and new adjuvant so what about really early stage disease stage 1a1 1a2 there are there is a trial going on there i believe um this is these are the small tumors they're all going to be lymph node negative um do you think uh, i think that's adora 2 do you think that's a, a a runner are we going to be over treating people what's your view on that one and also which you reminded me before the, the podcast there's also neo adjuvant tkis what, what, what's going on there 
Yeah, I mean, I th it, it's a really good question. I mean, we are running Adora 2, which is, is looking at these very small or these very early tumors. Um, I think it's a difficult one to know how much benefit we're going to give these patients. It still is committing them to three years of, of treatment. Um, I must say, you know, recruitment from our site, we have identified patients, but patients don't seem to be as inclined to jump onto this as I, I think they would have been with, with Adora. Um, and I think that is driven by the fact that these are potentially better prognostic tumours regardless of whether, you know, these are not patients we would automatically or, or routinely be offering adjuvant treatment to um, regardless of biomarker status. So I think this will take a lot longer to read out or to recruit and then read out. But, um, but at the same time, it's a chemo-free treatment. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think we need to bear that in mind. And if there is a benefit, uh, I think... I think the world, I think hopefully the world will evolve so that we are starting to use more sophisticated biomarkers, minimal residual disease and things like that that can actually help guide us to who we should be treating. Um, and I think that would be more important for these very early stage patients where you, you're right, we could potentially end up over treating a large proportion of patients with not just a, a toxicity potential burden, but also a financial burden uh, of, of treatment. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree with that one. Um, what's your experience? I mean, like me, you've been using some adjuvant osimertinib for, for the past still, well, about a year has been available through, through NICE. I found compliance less good. I found it's more difficult. I found very understandably that patients are less willing to tolerate toxicities when you're giving something in an adjuvant setting and they've felt well throughout and now you feel more unwell because of the tablet than in people in the metastatic setting where they felt awful before they started the drug and it's had this amazing um, response. Have you found the same? And do you think we're gonna have problems, as you say, with the very early stage disease keeping people on treatment? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you what your perception is. I think, I think the patient's perspective is they've probably got more to lose now. I think in the mm. metastatic setting, they are so, on it, you know, counting their tablets, making their the ones ringing. Look, I've only got a week left. When's my next supply coming? Yeah, I find yeah. we're almost chasing the adjuvant patients to make Absolutely. sure staying on treatment. Um, and I think, yeah, the tox side, I agree. But I, I must say, I think my mindset has changed as well on the tox side for the adjuvant patients. I, I'm, and not that I'm, should I say, relaxed about metastatic patients getting tox, but I think again, you know, they will put up with more, and and I would kind of expose them to more because of the the benefit you know we're improving we're trying to get them to live that 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 you know those extra years whereas in this setting as you said we, with the risk that we could be potentially over treating but also that these patients are going to live hopefully for another 30 40 50 years to you know things like the cardiac side and the cardiac toxicities and stuff I, you do i don't want to leave somebody with long-term heart yeah. failure oh, that's a really good point yeah absolutely vigilant with that side where i must say i'm a lot more relaxed in the metastatic yeah. setting yeah I, yeah if you've got someone in their 40s who you might cure you don't want to be causing permanent lv dysfunction yeah, absolutely okay so that's adjuvant treatment um os data as you say they, they produce these press releases and we're told it will appear in a conference we're, we're guessing probably asco which is a big american conference in in june or maybe EACR, which is again in the States in, in the spring. So that's that. We're going to now move on to Exxon 20 insertions. So we talked a little bit about this with Samreen. Um, she meant a drug called TAC-788. That's now known as Mobocertinib. That's the, 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 um, the, the generic name for it. Um, Exxon 20 insertion mutations, for those of you who aren't familiar, are 
what it referred to as the uncommon EGFR mutations, and it's probably the commonest of the uncommon mutations. And we now have two drugs available, two licensed drugs, only one of them actually NICE approved at the moment. Um, one's a tablet, mobocertinib, one's a drip, amivantamab. Amivantamab is a bispecific monoclonal antibody um, against meta and EGFR. Um, mobocertinib is a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So you, you've had a bit of experience of these. Do you feel one is better than the other? Um, if you had theoretically access to both, do you have a preference? Do we have any head-to-head -head data on them? Um, I, I think there's no head-to-head -head data. Um, there was, I believe, um, something presented at ASCO where they kind of did some sort of statistical adjustments to compare the two drugs. I think there was a poster on that. And I think that the, the bottom line is there isn't much to call in terms of efficacy. And, and I think both the Esclaim and um, Chrysalis studies, you know, objective responses, yes, you, slight difference, but we're around the 30, 40 mark. I think PFS is just a bit above the six month mark. So I think efficacy wise is really not much, in my opinion, to call between the two. I, I think the one thing probably stands out is that we're not, yes, it's great that we've got traction in this alteration, but we're not seeing the same kind of gains that we're seeing in um, sensitizing mutations. And I can't see these drugs entering first line just yet. I think we so, need... so that that's a really important point. So that they're not licensed first line, I should have said that they're licensed after platinum based chemo. So people with Nexon 20 insertion, folks, you should still be giving platinum based chemo. And you're right that that response rate 30 40%, that's way below what we would see with ozimertinib and the duration is shorter. So is it just we haven't got the right drug or is this a more a more difficult disease to treat, do you think? I think probably the latter, I think. Um, and, and I think, you know, and the drugs are showing that. I think the binding, there are issues, you know, with the, with the binding site and, and with the drugs and, and hence what we're finding, which is something that um, when you're saying, what do we call, you know, the, the previous question about any, what would I call between the two drugs? I think we're seeing, you know, with, with these drugs, although we are getting a bit of benefit, there is a tox uh, trade-off with them. Um, and I think, so I think there is a challenge, both in terms of efficacy. Yes, we have got something, and I think it's definitely better than docetaxel or, you know, moving on to the um, uh, cytotoxic treatment. But I think there, there are still challenges in terms of toxicities. As I said, amivantamab, we've got got to consider it's an infusion and quite a frequent infusion. You've got to do a day one, day two, then weekly before you move to two weekly. And you've got, you know, infusion reactions are relatively common, uh, but tend to happen earlier on if they're going to happen. And then, yeah. then you've got a mix of EGFR and because it's a MET binder as well, MET-based toxicities um, and mobocertinib being a, um, you know, carries a lot of the EGFR wild-type toxicities and in particular diarrhea seems to be quite prevalent with it. And I think that's something that, we need to bear in mind when, when when exposing patients to it yeah no absolutely i i, I think it, it is I, the, the way i i've read it is i i thought the mobocertinib probably as you say more more diarrhea the amivantamab the infusion reactions and certainly more of a pressure on our chemotherapy units and i i agree not much to choose between them efficacy wise um that first line treatment uh would you be giving these patients um pembrolizumab Pemetrexid and carboplatin, or would you just be giving them pemetrexid and carboplatin? And what's your rationale, assuming you know, of course, at that point what their mutation status is with the exon 20 insertion? So if I know at, at diagnosis, I think, well, one, 
I think one easy aspect is that potentially we can't give the Pem Pem the Pembro Carberg Pemetrexid because our blue tech form stipulates that the patient has to be EGFR wild type. So I guess although, it, although it, I, I would say in the interest of uh, of uh, geographical equality, uh, that applies to England only uh, with the with the blue tech form. But you're you're absolutely right. If you are if you are subject to a blue tech form, you, you should not be giving that. And what, what do you think the principle behind that is? Sorry, repeat that, Tom. Well, what do you reckon the, the, the concern about giving the, the immunotherapy is? Why, why are we being restricted from that? I mean, I, th I think, first of all, that there's definitely a, um, I think that there's a lot of data, at least single agent IO, we know we have very minimal traction with EGFR patients, uh, these driver mutation patients, these never smokers, uh, and that's regardless of PDL1 expression. Yeah. Um, and there are reasonable data sets, again, to show that even the chemo combination with IO um, potentially is not adding much much benefit and I know it's looking at the the flip side or the tail end of treatment but we've also had recently um, readouts for patients who progressed on the EGFR TKIs where we've looked at platinum uh, chemo versus platinum chemo and pembrolizumab or sorry immunotherapy and a couple of trials have shown negative uh, benefit for for using immunotherapy in combination so I think that there's the question about actually any efficacy from it, but also um, a potential concern, which has been shown, especially using single-agent immunotherapy, that if in these EGFR patients, if we then expose them to a TKI after IO-based therapy, we can lead to some issues with adverse events, delayed immunotherapy-based adverse events. So again, a, a potential toxicity issue as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm wary of that. And I think even if I had access to chemo immuno first line for exon twenties, I, I would not be throwing that around. I'm not sure that's a great, uh, a great way of doing it. Um, so that's the, the commonest of the uncommon mutations. But we do have other uncommon mutations. And one thing that caught my eye, and I'm sure caught your eye too, which sort of came out actually just after we did our last podcast. Um, was a paper looking at rare well, uncommon mutations and the fact that actually you can predict response um, uh, to TKIs and which TKI based on this. And the paper, the, the lead author is, is, a, is someone called uh, Jacqueline Robichaud, R-O-B-I-C-H-A-U-X, for those of you who want to read it up. And I really would recommend you do. I think it's fantastic. Um and it was published in uh, Nature in September 2021. And what they find is that you can predict response. Well, first of all, you have an atypical mutation. Um, you do less well. So atypical is everything other than exon 19 deletion and L858R. The overall prognosis, unfortunately, in patients with an, ex, with, with an atypical mutation is less good. They then talk about how you can predict response based on structure of the mutation they talk about eg uh, exon 20 insertions as we've talked about they talk about the different types of exon 20 insertions but they then talk about various other aspects but one particularly caught my eye is something called pack mutations p-a-c-c -C, uh, mutations and these are ones which are um characterized by for example G719X mutations, which people might have spotted. You may have also come across an L747X mutation. Um, the other one, for example, S76AI, those are the probably the three most recognizable, but there are others. And these ones are much more sensitive to a fatinib than osimertinib. And I think we've often known that 
um, perhaps a little bit more anecdotally, and this is the evidence behind it. Chibit, for your non-classic mutations, your non-exon 20 and your non-L858Rs, are, are you still using a fatinib, um, or do you think we should be just throwing osimertinib at everyone and don't worry too much about the mutation type? No, I, I, I think that paper that you mentioned, it, it was, it, it's a very, um, I think it's interesting in the aspect of actually looking at this in a different way. And I, I think the, the reason it, it's really poignant in the rare mutations is because, and I think you, you know, what, what you said it exactly alludes to that is that there is a lot of conflicting data out. There. There's a lot of heterogeneity between the alterations. There's a lot of, um, in terms of, uh, and in terms of data, there's a lot of, there's, well, there's a lot of data, a lot of uh, small series, a lot of retrospective data looking at, at what is the right treatment for these patients. I mean, for me, really driven by um, the large uh, publication that was in, I think, a couple of years ago in um, Journal of Thoracic Oncology, looking at FATNIP, I think it looked at about 700 patients with rare mutations. Um, yeah. And a lot of those came from the Lux Lung, uh, Lux Lung studies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the response rates were were pretty close to what we see with the um, with the more common mutation. So driven by that, for me, I think there definitely is something in in Afatinib. And I think they, the paper looking at protein structure, um, you know, I think that's a really unique way of looking at things. And, and it, it, it'd be a, a, a great way, you know, in the in a utopia world where we could actually do that and actually choose our drugs based on the actual protein structure, because you know, it definitely does matter if the mutation is away from the binding site, it probably doesn't matter what drug you use. But if it is then more affecting the binding site, then clearly the, cho the drug, drug choice is very important in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the real key um, is when you get your molecular biology results uh, back, um, read it properly. Um, make sure when it says EGFR mutation, you know which one it is. If in doubt, speak to your, um, your friendly local lab. We have an outstanding service from Mars. So I had a patient recently who had a very rare EGFR mutation. I uh, went through the paper, the Rubbish Show paper I mentioned, is actually in that as a uh, rare variant that would or should respond to a fatinib. I've chosen a fatinib and she's responded very well. So I absolutely agree with you, which is make sure you know what you're treating. Um, and it may well be that tofatinib is a better drug for select patients, albeit a, a more difficult drug for patients to take, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and I think the other aspect is even exon 20 insertions, there's a small proportion of the proximal alterations, which are, can be very sensitive to first-gen drugs. So yeah. uh, like you said, it's, it's really worth not, not just knowing the, the mutation, but knowing which exon and even actually getting to the granular level of the alteration because it really can drive the drug of choice and actually that that reminds me of something you mentioned at the beginning that some of us are still using pcr-based assays cobas for example pcr-based assay for egfr that misses we know the rarer mutations and so um ideally we should all be having access to next generation sequencing and if you are um, using a PCR-based assay, you have a patient who's never smoked, um, nothing else has come up, no mutations. I would strongly advise trying to find a way of having a, uh, perhaps a different way of looking at the DNA and RNA to, to understand whether there are maybe some uh, mutations in the DNA that have been missed through PCR. So we're going to jump on to uh, advances in metastatic first line disease. So when we uh, were talking with um, Samreen, we 
kind of reflected on the fact that really, with exception of those rare mutations, when we're thinking about common EGFR mutations, ozimersnib is very much what we do. Pretty much, we all give it. We give it as a single agent drug. Um, what's new? Um, I get asked a lot about: Can I have chemo and my TKI together? We know from uh, a study came out ooh, about 2021, but I think we had an overall survival update that adding chemo to gefitinib is helpful. What What's the data there? Is that enough to make you start using a gefitinib chemo combination? And if not, because gefitinib is an old drug, are you throwing around osimertinib and chemo or, or are there trials you're waiting for before you make such steps? Yeah, I, mean, I think there was... Um... A lot of excitement. I think that was a, it, during that presentation. I think there were a couple of strateg strategies that were talked about that might um, boost our what we're already achieving that first line setting. And you're right. Well, the first one was the, the gefitinib combination with carboplatin and pemetrexid. Uh, I think the PFS probably. I think it was shy of what Aussie achieved. I think it was around the 16 month mark for the combination. Um, and and yeah, I think there's there was a lot of interest generated in that. I, and on the back of that, we have got Flora 2, which has close to recruitment. Um, yep. And I think we obviously await the results of that. I, I'd be interested. Um, I think we have to see a significant gain over osimertinib because obviously there is a tox burden, there is a, you know, infusional burden. I think we all get excited when we see an EGFR patient, we reach for our you know, prescription, expect a tablet, uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. to get the tablets ready and the patient goes out yeah. and they live, uh, you know, and, you know, they, they don't visit the chemo unit. They, we see them in clinic every so often and it's a very easy ride for the patients. And a Absolutely. lot of patients that you speak to are quite frightened, especially the ones who are used to being on oral TKIs are quite frightened about the concept of chemotherapy. So I think there needs to be a significant gain to what we're achieved, what Absolutely. we've achieved with Flora to, to make that practice changing. I, I agree completely, and and I think, um, yeah, the, I, th I think being able, the, the new diagnosis of an of an EGFR mutated lung cancer is usually so shocking. I mean, anyone diagnosed with lung cancer with is shocking, but I think when you've never smoked, which probably these um, patients have never smoked, the one very small glimmer is well, here's a tablet, and it isn't chemo, and you don't have to come in for chemo, and I I agree that I think you need to have quite a big benefit for that. To, to, to be overridden um what about uh new tkis so we've talked a lot about ozimertinib it remains king uh vitamin o we call it down my neck of the woods because it's good for everyone it's not really good for everyone please don't everyone take it um but, but actually we, we haven't really moved on from it i mean it's been dominant for so long um is anything coming around the corner is there another ozimertinib around the corner are there any any pretenders to the throne? I mean, there are other third generation TKIs um, equivalent to osimertinib, um, lazertinib is, a, is, is one example, yep. um, which is getting some traction in, in as a, well, the, the, we're awaiting data of it as a single agent, but also talking about other first line strategies uh, as part of the Mariposa study, there's a combination of um, lazertinib with the drug that you talked about earlier on, amivantamab, um, combining the uh, EGFR met uh, by specific with yep. the EGFR TKI. And I think an interesting strategy, I think met 
inhibition up front failed when when we looked at it uh, using metmab yeah that, um, that was a, a huge disappointment that was um we were all convinced we'd we'd, we'd cured lung cancer and it was the <laughs> catastrophically negative study for a number of reasons but i think i think amivantamab it, it's it's got a different mode of action it's got yep. a broader mode of action it's got this immune re, um, recruiting um, aspect to it as well so i think that's going to be an interesting strategy uh, and one i think to look out for yeah, I, I think so. Um, and that there are other agents coming through, a um, number of different ones. Omelertinib is one which is an interesting approach, mainly because the approach with that drug is more trying to show similarity, perhaps in activity, but more focusing on an affordability of drug. And I think making sure agents we use for EGFR mutated lung cancer are as affordable and as accessible for everyone, including in countries with perhaps um, less well-resourced healthcare systems is, is really, really important. Um, okay, so we, we wait for chemo TKIs with Flora 2. We uh, wait for Mariposa to see whether lasertinib might be better or lasertinib and amivantin might, might be better. And we have a number of other drugs coming through. But still, we are largely dishing out ozimertinib. So in the last few minutes, what's the post-ozimertinib landscape like? I was actually going through a couple of slides uh, last week, and I came across a talk I did in something like 2018, I think it was. And I put a slide up from 2017 in that, where someone is talking about resistance mechanisms to ozimertinib, and here are all the resistance mechanisms, and we're going to target MET, and we're going to use this drug, and we're going to get new mutations, we're going to have that drug, and you know we're going to have a whole different landscape post-ozimertinib. That actually hasn't happened. In reality, the average I don't want to use that word, but the average patient you and I would see with ozimertinib who has progressed outside of clinical trials, we are reaching for platinum-based chemo. Um, being a bit more, being a bit more optimistic, what has caught your eye? Um, and if I could prompt you, um, there was some data that came out at ESMO in Paris in 2022 in the autumn with uh, looking at patients with MET amplification. What's all that about and what do you reckon? Um, I mean, yeah, I think the, the post-Aussie space is, is really exciting. And, and I agree. I think we, we've, we've known about the alterations, but we've not been able to action them as quickly as, as we, we would have wanted to. And um, I mean, yeah, if we, if we start with MetAMP, I, I think, first of all, you know, MET amplification is one of the more prevalent resistance mechanisms. So definitely one where, you know, targetable option is highly desirable. Um, and... I think well the the, the data that is is from comes from the Insight Two study looking at tipotinib, um, a met TKI combined with osimertinib. I think the first lesson that we've learned, and I think that probably is why we've struggled to get traction for so long, is that um, actually understanding that we need to keep the the EGFR TKI pressure on in that resistance setting. Yeah, uh, and we've definitely learned that from the met space both with Insight too. So this is looking at tipotinib combined with osimertinib, and I think response rates were around 50%, so quite, quite impressive. I, I, I was quite impressed by it. And, and there's two drugs which are available. I mean, tipotinib is already available for met on 14 skipping mutations, and osimertinib is available. Now, we should stress that that's outside the license indication of, of tipotinib, but it is interesting. There was no survival data, if I remember correctly, but that response rate, I think, is respectable as they say yeah and, and a, a similar strategy 
using one of the classes of drugs that I'm getting most excited about, antibody drug conjugates. So yeah. um, a drug called Telezo V, yeah. which is a, a MET targeting um, ADC. Uh, and it, a very similar strategy in the luminosity study, using it as a single agent in the EGFR progressing patients, there was very little signal, but there's now a phase one study combining it with ozimertinib, and again, yeah. response rates hitting around 50, 60%. So there definitely seems to be something in keeping that, that EGFR pressure on. Absolutely. I think MET's a, a really exciting space, and I'm hopefully we will have uh, reimbursed treatment options in that setting. And I think clearly, obviously, our testing landscape has to also evolve. We need to be testing for these alterations. Uh, and that would, of course, that. require us to read biopsy at progression, which we always used to do when we were using Aussie as a second line treatment. Um, so maybe we need to go back to that. Um, C797S, so that's a mutation which we see a de novo new mutation, resistance mutation. I remember talking about it for a long time now. I very rarely see it. I don't know if it's just my patient cohort. If I do see one, have you got anything up your sleeve to target C797S? Well, not you personally, personally no, but does, but does, does anyone? There, well, there is a lot of interest. I think that there's a, an array of fourth gen now EGFR TKIs. Uh, Blue 945 um, is is one of them, um, yep. which is I think is it the Symphony study, um, which is the early phase trial looking looking at at this drug. So, I think one. I think yes, there is, and there's a lot of work going on in that. But at the same time, um, there are a couple of other strategies coming through which seem to be pan resistance mechanism um, targeting, or should I say non-target, or, you know, uh, in terms of um, efficacy against pan alteration. So um, there's a HER3 antibody drug conjugate um, in the Athena yep. studies, um, Athena trial looking, um, I think the response rates, so the patients had progressed on the EGFR TKIs and chemotherapy. Um, and what we know is that HER3 tends to be overexpressed in uh, EGFR patients on progression, I think about 80% are overexpressing HER3, so it makes it quite an attractive target for an antibody drug conjugate. Um, and I think response rates in the post-TKI and chemo setting was around 30%. Um, and interestingly, we saw responses regardless of the alteration from MET to C797S to, to no um, targetable option. I think that's really um, emphasizes you know, the, the mode of action of antibody drug conjugates, the alteration it's targeting doesn't have to be driving the cancer cell, but becomes a useful target to deliver yeah, the, yeah. the payload. Um, and I think that- I, I absolutely agree. I think a really interesting drug. I'm very impressed you got so far without actually naming the drug itself, because it's very difficult to pronounce. But so what you about Derek's teacup. <laughs> very <laughs> good. <you> think, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think absolutely. I think that's a really interesting uh, approach, and I think the idea of not having to necessarily target your resistance, but something else that's now a susceptibility is really good. Um, we've talked about Mariposa, which was the first line trial of amivantamab, bispecific monoclonal, and lazertinib. But Mariposa 2, as the name suggests, is a second-line study after ozimertinib. Um, I, I find it quite difficult to remember the, the details, but this is chemo versus chemo plus amylazertinib in various combinations. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, again, an interesting strategy, partly because, as we've already mentioned, MET is a prevalent um, escape mechanism, but again, the premise of this is is to target all all alterations. And I think there was a cohort within the Chrysalis study that 
um, where responses are small numbers, but pretty impressive responses. So I think this again is, a, is an attractive strategy um, and a, a, I think one to look out for. Again, we've got to bear in mind it is, I, I think the toxicities will be interesting. Um, obviously we've got a, a four drug regimen yeah. here. So yeah. that's probably one thing that we need to bear in mind. But I, again, um, I, I just emphasizes the, the amount of activity happening in the post Aussie space. Absolutely. Um, and the last one to mention in the post Aussie space is Keynote 789. So study we I was involved with. Um, this was we'll just brief, I'll just briefly mention it. This was um Pemetrexid Carbo versus Pembrolizumab Pemetrexid Carbo after first line TKIs. That's a negative study. So the message from that, folks, is that if you have a patient who has progressed with EJFR mutation, sorry, who has progressed on Ozimertinib or other or their TKIs, um, don't give them PEM, PEM carbo because that's not evidence-based. Pemetrexid carboplatin alone is there. If you have so, someone who's very keen to have immunotherapy, then Joe, but there's still access to Impower 150, carbo, taxol, Bev, and a Tizo. Are, are you an Impower 150 fan? Do you use it very much or more of the select cases? I'd say select cases. I'm, I don't go all guns blazing for everybody. I think it's... Uh... It's it's a it's a tough regime, both logistically and and tox based. Um, so, but but definitely, you know, the Impal 150 data is it it's the first data we've got in that setting showing actually benefit for um, an IO based strategy. Um, and I think one thing that that's great. And I, we don't like negative studies, but I think you know the Keynote 789. It, it's an important one to know because I think a lot of sometimes there's all this mindset that more is better. And to know that we don't need to reach out for the PEM, you know, the, the IO um, in that setting is important. Um, so, yeah, potentially it is clearly the VEGF drug in that quadruple that's, that's driving the benefit. So, um, but no, I, I, it's not one I, I put all patients on. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think it it has its role, but I um, the more updated overall survival benefit, sorry, the more updated overall survival data has shown that that benefit is, is lost over time. So I think it has a role in some patients, but it's not something we use hugely, although it is, again, not nice approved and, and is available uh, for your use if you need it. Um, finally, last topic before we wrap up is patients with locally advanced disease. Now, there's a huge amount of press releases, data coming out on neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapies, separate podcast for that, obviously. Um, question we're often asked is in that neoadjuvant setting or in the chemoimmunotherapy setting, uh, uh, sorry, chemoradiotherapy setting, so imagine the Pacific kind of scenario, what should we do with patients with EGFR mutations? Um, uh, do you uh, would you be giving someone um, adjuvant ozimertinib after their chemo rad, um, or do you think we should be giving them adjuvant immunotherapy with dervalumab, or are you waiting for trials to tell us what to do? Definitely the the latter of those options. I think, um, and and on that note, there is the Laura clinical trial. There is Laura to add to. Flora and Flora two and Adora and Adora two and there's yes someone's someone's doing well in the naming of trials there. So Flora, sorry, this is Laura. What so Laura is for locally advanced disease. Presumably. Yeah, stage three. I had chemo, rad, and then adjuvant Aussie. And I, I think without that, I, I would, I'd feel uncomfortable outside of a trial giving uh, an EGFR mutated patient adjuvant Aussie post 
local therapy. And no, uh, and again, I, I, Derva, for the reasons we've we've already alluded to, I, I would avoid giving these patients. My personal practice would be not to offer adjuvant tevolumab, even if they are PD-1 positive. I think for the reasons one, I'm not sure that they'll actually get any benefit, but also I'd be worried about if they did relapse, would I run into toxicity issues um, when they do start when I do need to start them on the TKI? I, I absolutely agree with you, and I, I think. Again, you you need to know that mutation status according to most of the reimbursement forms in the UK, and and I think in EGFR, I think that um, adjuvant immunotherapy is probably without evidence base. Um, Shabir, thank you so much for giving up your Tuesday evening on strike night before your your long day on the wards tomorrow, taking blood and and other such things. Um, uh, so that's incredibly helpful. I hope that has cleared up um, various things about EGFR, mutated lung cancer. To remind people that BTOG 2023 is but uh, a month away, a little bit more. So if you haven't signed up, then there's clearly something wrong because you should have signed up. Um, and if you do sign up, not only will it be a fantastic experience, uh, multidisciplinary working uh, huge amounts of uh, education networking, but also if you're lucky, uh, you might see Shobit in, in the hall and, and what greater reward could there be for that? Um, and we look forward to you joining us for our next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on BTOG, including educational events and how to join, of course, you can visit www.btog.org. Just to remind you, we would love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions about things we discussed and for the really interesting ones we'll even discuss them in our next uh, podcast you can contact us on info at btog.org or on twitter at btog.org thank you very much